Welcome to the Pause to Remember podcast. My name is Amy Pelkey. I'm a practicing CRNA yoga teacher and mother to one son here on earth and one daughter who was stillborn. If you are a healthcare provider who has experienced pregnancy or infant loss, this podcast is for you. My goal is to offer resources, conversations, and mindfulness-based grief tools to help providers like you build the courage to acknowledge and process your emotions, the strength to carry your grief, and resilience so you can preserve your career, relationships, and overall well-being while honoring the memory of your baby. I want to assure you that you are not alone in your grief. I am thankful that you are here today. Let's begin. My guest today is Katie Cooper. She is a CRNA living near Nashville, Tennessee. And after working in a community hospital and ambulatory surgery centers, Katie began working as an independent contractor for the past five years. After working primarily in office-based settings, doing a variety of cases, Katie focuses her care now in the area of fertility anesthesia. She also teaches American Heart Association courses for CRNAs needing to get certified in BLS, ACLS, and PALS with her company, CRNA ACLS, which is a member of CRNA Partners. Katie has been married for 21 years to a husband that writes thrillers and has three children. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast. Yes, me too. Do you want to jump right in and just talk about um, your experience being an egg donor in your 20s and how that impacted your career? Sure, sure. Yeah, it was an unusual circumstance. Um, Nothing that I really knew about um, going into it. But when I was in school, undergrad at University of Virginia, there actually was a guest speaker one day who came from a fertility clinic in town, locally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And she spoke about fertility medicine because it wasn't something that was offered to us, you know, in part of our curriculum. And so when she spoke with us at the end, she kind of left it open to, you know, if any of you are interested in learning more and you are female, um, there is a possibility that you'd be able to be an egg donor. I mean, what better candidates for egg donation than 20 year old healthy women who are interested in nursing and medicine and also helping people. And so I think I was the, I actually don't know for sure, but I think I was the only one who volunteered my time. And it was a big process. I had no idea going into it, how long it would last. Um, She came to talk to us in about September. And then I actually didn't have my egg donation until January. But for me, the process was meeting initially with the clinic just to verify my medical history, to verify um, if I was psychologically ready to be an egg donor, and then also just how comfortable I was with certain aspects of egg donation. So there's lots of legal things that happen behind the scenes with egg donation, but the intended parents um, are the ones that are generally in charge of all of that, or at least make the big decisions. But you as an egg donor also have to be okay with that. So for instance, it was an, an anonymous donation. So they didn't know my name. Um, they could choose attributes. Um, so perhaps I'm uh, speculating that the, um, that the intended mom, you know, saw me for my brown hair and blue eyes. And, and she said, well, that matches me. And maybe she was interested in my nursing background or, or something like that. Or maybe it was because I was from the Midwest. I'm not really sure. Um, and I actually don't know why or how I got matched up with that family. So 
after I got matched up with family, then I had to go through even more background and, and medical questions about, you know, my medical history, but also my parents, my grandparents. Um, they don't often have a lot of adopted um, children who become egg donors because they do want to do a full uh, medical evaluation and genetic history. Nowadays, that was in 2000. So nowadays, um, genetic history is huge. And in the fertility world, they can do a lot more testing than they could 23 years ago. Uh, so when after I made it through, I guess, the evaluations, and they were okay with my medical history and my parents' medical history and all of that, then I started the donation process, which included um, lots of different medicines um, at different times. And there's different protocols that they use. It's probably very different than they did it here. I don't honestly remember how many shots I took, but I know I took a bunch. <laughs> and I also, um, and then I had an egg retrieval, just one, um, luckily. And so on a random January day, I was back to school from where I spent Christmas break in Michigan back to school in Virginia. Uh, I had just met um, someone who eventually became my husband. And he, he said, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm coming to visit. And I said, well, I'm having a procedure. <laughs> and he said, well, what kind of procedure? And I said, well, um, it's kind of a strange, you know, conversation topic for a new relationship, but I'm donating my eggs. And he kind of said, why? <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't really know. I didn't really have an answer for it. Um, I didn't really tell anyone that I was doing it other than I needed someone to pick me up after my donation because I couldn't very well walk home. And so he actually came um, on that day and, and took off. Um, he was in the military at the time. So he drove from DC and it was a, um, a good surprise. I don't remember any part of this, of course, but I did have to go to sleep for the egg donation. And I remember being awake for the beginning of it. And then I remember them asking me, are you doing okay? And then all of a sudden I was not doing okay or not that I wasn't doing okay, but I felt more of the pressure pain um, that was not, I was not tolerating it <laughs> as well as I could have. And so I, um, and then so they, apparently they put me all the way to sleep. So I woke up in the recovery room and, um, and went home that day. And, and then afterwards um, the family, the intended parents of the eggs could, of my eggs could decide how much they wanted to tell me after the fact too. So I thought that was really interesting. And I, I kind of did some psychology classes. And so I was interested in the questions that they were asking me during the initial process. But then afterwards, you know, they said, depending on how many eggs they got, they would ask me, you know, do you want to know how many embryos they made? Um, and it was up to the intended parents, whether they told me or they didn't. So my answers were yes for everything, you know, yes, I want to know um, if they're okay telling me. And so they never um, agreed to tell me how many embryos, but then eventually, uh, a year later, they actually did tell me that they had a successful pregnancy with twins, a boy and a girl. Um, they didn't tell me the birth date or what their names were. I don't, of course, it's all anonymous. And then, um, and then they found out, I found out later that, and I was just about to graduate, that they were pregnant with their second pregnancy, third child. And to this day, I still don't know um, what that um, child ended up being and I've never done Ancestry.com or 23andMe or anything like that because I suspect that they could find me that way. I actually wouldn't mind it at all. I just haven't explored that. And I'd have to talk to you know my family and <laughs> make sure. Uh, my husband obviously was there, so he knows I'm an egg donor. Um, I'm not sure if my parents know <laughs> or no, uh, but it turns out that my gym, my gym teacher, which actually was also my long-term babysitter growing up, used an egg donor. So after I told some people and I would get back in touch with her, even as an adult, and um, I knew she had one child and um, she was not married when she had that child. And 
she said, oh, I used an egg donor to have my child. And so, and her name is Katie too, like me, her daughter's name is Katie. And so I was like, did you, it's actually Kate because I went by Kate back then, but I go by Kate now anyway and so no she did not name her because her mom's name is katie too but like did you name her after me that's kind of neat uh, but that's not true so but that was my um my experience in egg donation and it really led me to where i am now doing anesthesia um, for fertility patients um, but i enjoyed the process i mean i guess if you call you know giving giving yourself a bunch of shots i will say in nursing school it was wonderful because i had all the nursing students who wanted to practice doing im and subcutaneous shots and all the shots that you have to take uh, during that process. Um, it's a lot. Not everybody will go through that process easily. And I've seen patients come in um, now to my fertility clinic and each, each patient has a different experience for sure. But, uh, but it was kind of neat to, to give the nursing students that opportunity to, to practice their skills on a fellow nursing student. So, but I'm glad, I'm really glad that I did it. And, you know, I have no idea nowadays, there's a lot of um, legal ramifications about whether they used all the embryos they made or not. And um, at, from my perspective, I just, it's, you know, that I was happy to be an egg donor. I'm happy for their family and, um, and I wish them the best. And it will be neat to see if, um, if they find me <laughs> as they're genetically uh, a match in the future. Out of curiosity, does the family receiving the eggs, I'm assuming they provide all the compensation for the care that you received. And then do you get compensated for the donation? Yeah, I didn't really know exact. I knew that it was compensated. I don't think I knew initially when I signed up how much the compensation was. And if I had to search my memory, it was probably about $1,000 for compensation, which as a college student was very helpful, especially in nursing school and you know, provided me an opportunity to take some time off before I started my school. I know now it's a lot more, of course, inflation and all that. But um, it was a package where I never saw any costs. Obviously, it didn't cost me anything. And I think every donor, it might be a little bit different. So some donors may say you have to cover this and et cetera, you know, or they want to cover their nutrition throughout the donation process or whatever it is. There were some restrictions as far as what you could, um, you know, if the intended parents had some restrictions or they didn't want you to drink alcohol for that month or whatever it was, you had to kind of abide by their rules. But I would say that it's worth it going through the process, especially as you're young and you have, you know, a gazillion eggs that you can share that um, it really does help a family. And at this point too, you can, they have a process where you can donate to one family, or if you get a lot of eggs, if you donate to a, a, a fertility center, then you're able to choose whether you could split the eggs or not. It's not as, not like sperm donation where you can go anytime you want and donate your eggs, but generally they have a, a family intention or an intended family already for you as you come in and say, I'm interested in being a, in being an egg donor, but it's not very common. And then there's also cross state lines and that gets into some of the legal stuff too about, you know, I found an egg donor for you, but they're in Tennessee and you're in California. How is that going to work out? And just the logistics of that um, I stay out of in my current job, but it was interesting to see. Yes, that it does sound very interesting. Do you know if there is an average wait time for couples who are looking for an egg donor? Is it hard to find somebody? Um, I don't know that answer. I would say that they probably have a better bet uh, recruiting their own egg donor. Okay. If they knew of someone or they knew of someone who maybe struggled with infertility 
Um, it's possible that some people do freeze some of their eggs too and don't always use them to make embryos. So there could be something where if you are parents or future parents that are looking for an egg donor, you have the option, or at least it's open to calling a fertility center and saying, you know, do you have a family that um, maybe for religious reasons or other reasons, they don't want to use their eggs, or maybe they've made enough embryos and they're, and they're good, but they have extra frozen eggs. Um, it might be something like that. But I know the families that use an egg donor are typically, they've typically gone through several rounds of IVF, or they know for age-wise of the um, intended mother or um, just lab-wise, you know, blood draws that they do that their eggs are not going to be of good quality or they've tried um, to retrieve eggs and it just, they haven't been successful in that uh, process. And so I think it's, you're already well, mostly, you're already well into your fertility journey. And so hopefully um, that's not, and it is, it's hard to make that decision because a lot of parents um, or future parents, you know, don't necessarily want children to be, you know, genetically matched with, um, with them. But, um, but I don't feel like I'm their mother at all (laughs) as an egg donor. um, I just really wanted to help a family and, and they are, they are absolutely their mom and dad. So, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think, I think uh, waiting time would probably be very long if they were just looking for someone to come in and donate off the street, you know, they don't, it's not like they have one of those spinny signs that are out there on the corner saying, don't come in and donate your eggs. Um, I wonder if honestly going to colleges and those that are, you know, maybe graduating without a job or something. I mean, there's, there's some ethical issues with that, but they're also the best people to get donated eggs are from young, healthy females. Um, so, uh, especially those that, you know, are, in a profession or in a situation where maybe they do need money or maybe they don't, but, uh, but they, they have that intention of helping someone. Cause um, I'm not sure a lot of people would sign up to, to do it knowing, you know, there's pain involved and there's blood draws and, you know, there's medications and yes, you have to sign all the paperwork and, and go through that process, but, um, but it's, it's worth it in the long run. Since we're talking about um, egg retrieval Could you maybe shine a little light on the process um, at all or some things to think about, for um, example, somebody who knows that they are going to have a prolonged period of time when they're in school, whether they're going to graduate school or medical school, and they're most likely not going to have time to start a family until they're in their 30s and their fertility may not be preserved that long? Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you what not to do. And maybe that's a better way to explain it because now currently our average age of patients requiring egg retrievals. um, So they stimulate follicles to grow. They check your lab values. They check your lab values initially to see, and and depending on one in particular, it's called the AMH. um, It is important to have it over a certain number. And if it's not, your chance of having successful egg retrievals are low. They're not zero, but they're low. And you may have to come back for multiple rounds. I have seen a trend, and I'm not sure if it's social media or other celebrities perhaps um, talking about egg preservation is what we call it, where you choose to have your eggs retrieved at a younger age. The chance of you retrieving healthy, mature, so we talk about maturity when we do egg retrievals too, so you can take eggs out that are in the follicles, but they're not all going to be mature. So you get an initial number, maybe it's 20, and then of those 20, a certain amount are mature. As you get older and things change, and it's not 40 or 45, it can be 32, it can be 28. It just depends. And no one no one knows until you actually start trying to have a family 
what your numbers are and no one really knows what their numbers are. And they're like, oh, they've tried for a year, but nothing's happened or nothing's successful. And so it is something that they've really encouraged. And we're definitely seeing more people in their twenties, young professionals who focus on that and focus on their profession initially. And then they know they want to have a family and maybe they won't use them. Maybe they'll just be in a bank and they're using them, you know, maybe they won't get married until their mid thirties or, or later. And, and that's okay, but they know that they have some successful or healthy, mature eggs ready if need be to use, because it is um, one of the hardest things working in fertility is those couples that have been through um, just natural, trying to get pregnant naturally. And then they start with maybe, you know, uh, lesser invasive forms of uh, fertility treatment and then moving up the chain of, okay, now we're at an egg retrieval. Oh, well, you've spent three years trying to get pregnant in other ways. And now we're here and you're 38, 40, 42, and it's more difficult and you have to come in for more and it's more expensive. Um, so even though the expense of freezing your eggs, of uh, retrieving them early and freezing them, it will be much less than real IVF treatments um, or not real, but uh, full on IVF treatments in the future. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a great thing. It's a great thing if, um, especially those that are young professionals, you know, they're making money and um, it's a it's a good investment in their future, even if it's not intentional. And then, um, then you have the option of donating them as well. So there's not an infinite time that you can freeze your eggs. I believe it's 10 years, but don't quote me on that. So you can't do it too soon, but you also can't do it too late either. So, and it is, you pay for the year. Sometimes there's packages. And if you know you're retrieving your eggs early and you're 25, there might be, you know, packages. Okay. We're going to store your eggs for 10 years. And after that you pay yearly or every fertility clinic has a little bit different way of dealing with that. Are there some patient behaviors that can impact the intended outcome of the IVF egg retrievals that you want to touch upon? I like any procedure. It's best to be as healthy as possible before you go into your procedures, um, particularly with anesthesia. I know, you know, everybody knows that anesthesia is safe. There are risks of anesthesia every time, but the less risky a patient is going into surgery, typically the less overall risk that they have. So I'm speaking of, and a lot of times in fertility medicine, if you smoke, they will strongly encourage you to quit smoking for months before you even start your IVF journey. Um, if you are overweight, if your BMI is over 40, we actually have a cutoff so that we cannot retrieve your eggs. And by the way, these hormones can make you gain weight temporarily. And so if you're on the cusp, it's going to be really difficult for the um, embryologist and for the uh, fertility specialist to uh, make that commitment to you. Um, as far as your heart and your lungs, I mean, really everything. So we've taken care of patients that may have a predisposition or, or a genetic condition like diabetes, type one diabetes, we can still take care of you. But the best thing you can do is get your A1C down. If you have MS, we'll still take care of you. We just need to know, you know, what medications you're on and are you optimized for surgeries? And then during the procedure, um, for me, it's, I, I may not do anesthesia the same way as some, another CRNA, but it is harder for the fertility physician to retrieve eggs when anatomically you have challenges. So it may not be your uterus is tilted, but it may be you have um, excess adipose tissue around your abdomen. It may be where you've had previous GYN surgery. So maybe you had to get one of your ovaries removed. That means that you'll only have the one side to work with. So there are certain things that you can prevent like smoking and, and your weight and your nutrition too. A lot of people um, take supplements. There's a lot of supplements that have been well studied as far as ideally optimizing your body. 
for an egg retrieval. And then also um, I have tons of patients that do acupuncture or do massages or do a lot of stress management. I will say if you come in with stress and this is, this whole process is a stressful, it's a stressful environment. Everyone's going through it. Everyone you see in the office is, is, has different, you know, uh, they're going through different things at different times, but it's very stressful. And sometimes it helps to have that. It's very helpful to have a support system. So whether that's your spouse or your partner or someone you know who's gone through it or is going through it together, I can't tell you how many times in the waiting room two future moms will be talking to each other and and then they exchange numbers and then they support each other. Um, that can also be flipped a little bit. We hear about people who are on Facebook groups and whatnot. And um, sometimes when you're doing everything you can and everybody else seems to be having successful IVF treatments and you're the only one, quote unquote, that's not, um, that can be very uh, stressful. <laughs> that can add to the stress and add to the negativity. So uh, having the support system, making your body as healthy as possible and really optimizing yourself before this process, whether it's counseling with your partner too. I think that's an important thing to do. Um, it does not it, it, it's rarely makes, um, couples or partners stronger going through it because it's so stressful. Um, just like all the stressors we have in marriage or in partnership, um, this is one of the bigger ones. So it's important to make sure that you have that relationship really strong before you come in. That's very good feedback for anybody who is starting that process. I think having a plan in place and some support makes a lot of sense. And realistic expectations. I didn't mention it, but sometimes people will have heard, well, this surgeon always gets this. There's not an always, um, it's not a one size fits all. Every patient is different, no matter what age you are and, and um, other, you know, medical history. But, you know, just because someone else had this experience doesn't mean that yours is going to be the same good or bad. Absolutely. Do you have recommendations for anyone who is starting to do their research to find a fertility center and things that you think that they should look for or avoid? Sure. Uh, particularly with the IVF treatment. So IVF, I usually mean egg retrievals, making embryos and having the embryo transferred into you. And then there's also IUIs um, where they're, you know, with your cycle, making sure that the you know sperm goes in and it can be a concentrated form or concentrated amount. Um, so you can do, you know, your partner can um, donate the sperm and not donate, but I guess it's like donation, but it's not to you. Yeah. <laughs> Deposit, there you go. Um, and so they may do multiple and then they, you know, get the highest quality and the, you know, best swimmers out there is what embryology says. We have <laughs> the best swimmers today. But I will say looking for a clinic, you want to make sure because of all of these different times you have to go in, especially for lab draws, you want to make sure it's local to you, or at least within your acceptable driving range. And I mean, we have people that drive up, we're in Tennessee and Nashville, but we have people that drive from Alabama or Kentucky or fly in occasionally um, for it. And they come in and they stay for a couple of weeks or they'll come in for their initial visit and then they'll come in for their procedures. Um, so local place is great. Um, I would ask a lot of these, uh, especially since COVID, but even recently, they've been doing a lot of telehealth visits to start, which is a good way to say what have, you know, for the fertility physician to say, what have you done already? How long have you been working on getting pregnant and kind of going, have you ever had your labs checked? And so they kind of, instead of having to come in, because those are very straightforward questions, and then the physician can uh, develop a plan for you. Um, but that generally, the first thing they do is draw your labs and just see where that AMH is and and I've learned a lot in the last couple of years of working fertility, but I still stick with anesthesia. So they used to throw out all of these acronyms and I'm like, okay, great. Um, there's, there's 
if there's a lot in nursing, there's like five times as many in, uh, in embryology and in that department, I would ask their success rate. Honestly, I would ask at my age, what is your success rate? Um, that can be, it can be not just success of retrieving eggs, um, or what's their IUI success rate, you know, and, and they don't always know exactly, you know, 16.5% or 71%, whatever it is, but they can give you an idea of, of how they operate. I would also ask, this is a big one. We get, um, different, Patients coming from different fertility clinics, um, it seems like, you know, if you're uncomfortable or you're not getting the support that you need at your particular site, particular site that you're going to, um, there's usually a backup. Um, it may be a little bit further away from you, but we asked to what um, quality over quantity is what our clinic's really big on. So they may say, well, I got 50 eggs, but only three were mature. And, and that is all about the protocols that they use and the medications that they use and when they trigger you to for the egg retrieval. So it's an important thing to know, you know, are you always shooting for as many eggs? If that if that answer is yes, that's actually kind of a red flag, which I didn't, I wouldn't think about, you know, because I would want, well, the most eggs is the best, but um, it's really about quality, mature eggs that they're looking for as far as, um, as far as the fertility clinic. Uh, I would say to the staff, the staff makes a huge difference. If the staff has a portal, patient portal, that's a good thing to have so that you can message them. You don't have to wait on hold or wait for someone to call you back. Um, how, what's your what's your return or your call rate, um, re your response rate back? If it's within 24 hours, that's great. If it's three or four days, we'll get to you when we get to you. That's a red flag. Um, we hear about that sometimes. And sometimes you want to ask, and this is similar to like uh, asking for an OBGYN, um, how many times do you, the whoever you're hooked up with? So at, when I started, there was only one um, fertility specialist, fertility physician. Um, now we have three. And so it is possible they all take one day off a week and that they should <laughs> because they cover weekends and they cover nighttimes and everything. Uh, but there's times that that your surgeon or your proceduralist may not be the one that you've been seeing this whole time. Um, that for some people is really important. So it was, it is kind of for OB too, you know, someone you've seen for nine or 10 months, um, you kind of want them there for the delivery, but it's not always possible. And, and we kind of explain, you know, why it's not, they opened up if they have multiple clinics, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad because that physician has to go to multiple clinics too. So they may not be the one seeing you. Um, we have a great team. We have a great nurse practitioner too. I would say that that's a good question to ask. Do you have nurse practitioners? Do you have a backup? If you're in a procedure and you have an appointment coming up, um, is there someone who can see me on time or, you know, <laughs> you know, everyone in a medical specialty, it's really tough to be on time and we can explain it all we want. And there's always delays that happen. So um, you know, when are they open? Are, is it convenient for you to come in? Uh, are they only open eight to 12? I know there's a clinic not in Tennessee, but somewhere else. And they said, well, they're only open eight to 12. And um, I work from, you know, seven to three. So do they have afternoon appointments? That's a question you need to ask too. So do you work on the weekends? A lot of times with fertility, they'll sometimes bunch together their patients or their procedures so that they may only have a week where they do procedures. We do them year round. Um, it's rare that we don't, the only time we don't do it is Christmas week because the lab, the embryology lab actually shuts down and does a deep cleaner. I don't know what they do, but they do <laughs> something for backup, but that was a long answer. But yeah, I think those are the questions I would ask. And really it's about feeling comfortable. Um, if you feel like a number, ask to see another specialist. If they're the only one there, go to somewhere else. All the physicians have different personalities and sometimes you will um, clash with some and you'll um, really connect with others. So 
try a couple. It's okay to, <laughs> to interview with a couple different because really their ultimate goal is to get you where you want to be. And they're all intended that that's their intention, but uh, how they get there is a little bit different. Are they warm and fuzzy? Do you mind if they're warm and fuzzy or do you want someone to just tell it to you straight? <laughs> you know? sure. And uh, each patient is different and, and what they want to hear. That makes sense. Do you find that there are some resources that are typically offered in these fertility clinics that aren't always tapped into? Like there's a nurse that provides emotional support or anything like that, mm -hmm. that people should be aware of are, is that's available. Mm -hmm. Cause you already talked about like acupuncture and counseling things outside of the fertility space, but is there anything else that people should think right. about? Um, I think an internal support group is important. I think sometimes they people build their own support group just from seeing people, you know, multiple times in the same week or the same month. Um, I know that having someone to communicate with, there's so many questions that come up that may, you may have the same question as the previous 2000 patients, but it's still an important question. And so having that, like I mentioned, the patient portal, um, as much as you can also send things anytime you want to the patient portal. So it goes both ways, like ask the right questions, but also don't ask 20 questions in, you know, two hours and expect it them to get back to you so quickly. Uh, but having that patient support system built in, I know our fertility clinic has kind of an overarching parent clinic. And so they have a lot of support and even um, webinars and, and things, uh, they have a lot of kind of fertility 101 webinars or Facebook um, live feeds that the, or recordings too, that they can share with you because they kind of try to cover all of the typical questions. As most people know, fertility is not, um, not most typical. <laughs> it doesn't always go typically, I should say, but, uh, but yeah, have, asking for those support systems. Um, financials too is a big one that we haven't mentioned, but they have sometimes packages that you can purchase. There are some insurances, health insurances out there that do cover one round, they might cover multiple rounds. Um, we tend to see certain employees from certain companies in town because we know that they do offer coverage. Um, so that's an important thing to do. You can ask your own insurance company if you if they do cover uh, fertility treatments, what do they cover? That's important too. Do they just cover medications um, like Clomid or do they cover IUIs? Do they cover IVF treatments? And how many? Because uh, it may be something where they might cover one, but you still have to cover the rest. And of course, the more times you need treatment, the more more um, expensive it can get. We also have a donation program for medicine that's not used. So you may have a, a woman that is going through IVF and she you have to order all the medicines, but depending on her lab, she may not use it all. And so they have a donation program for free or heavily discounted medications to give to someone else who can't, um, who can't afford the medication. So that's a good question to ask the center too. Yeah. I would have never even thought to ask about something like yeah. that. And that probably can make a big difference, especially mm -hmm. if you're doing multiple mm -hmm. rounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, I've had friends who went through IVF in the last five years and they're like, I still have X. I'm like, what is the expiration date? Oh, not expired. Okay. But a lot of it's refrigerated too. So you have to make sure that you follow the, you know, the right um, storage protocols and all of that. Is there anything else about fertility clinics, the anesthesia for it, optimization that you feel like we haven't touched upon? For the egg retrievals. Um, so we do in our clinic, we do egg retrievals. And then we also do hysteroscopies and some other procedures that get the body or the cavity or the uterus ready for the um, the embryo transfer. So for the egg retrievals, that's usually the first time I see patients. Um, they do have to meet certain criteria. Um, we still do, we, it's a CRNA only practice. So it's just a solo CRNA. 
and we do a full history and physical. Uh, the nurses, the pre-op nurses do have a list of questions, or at least they have a history also from the physician. And so if anything is kind of a red flag or they need to ask a question, um, we had someone recently who was, um, she actually had did genetic testing for this process and found out she's more likely to have a condition called malignant hyperthermia. And so we do have an anesthesia machine and, you know, the nurse was just like, can we do her in this facility? And yes, and we do special precautions for that. But so they come in and we do our history and physical, just make sure everything matches up. We make sure what medications they're on. Typically these patients are usually young and healthy and not on a lot of medications outside the fertility medicines that they've been put on and the supplements. And then um, we start an IV they have to empty their bladder before they go back to the um, surgeries so that um, the follicles that are nice and big and um, juicy, I call them, sit on top of the bladder so we, or underneath. So we want to make sure the bladder's um, not in the way. And then they get themselves in position. I'm usually, I like using short acting medicine. And so typically I want you to feel like yourself. I want you to feel even better than yourself for the rest of the day. I always pre-treat for nausea, young, healthy, non-smoking women higher chance of nausea. So um, knock on wood, I uh, haven't had an incidence of nausea in a very long time. And then um, once you're positioned in the room, I tend not to use it. I used to use a lot more Versed, um, depending on the anxiety level. Um, sometimes I don't because a lot of times the um, there are my patients, I find that they like the control of it. So if you if they feel out of control in this process, um, it's not a great thing for them. So I usually say you might remember and you're going to place yourself in position and I'm going to put your monitors on and I'm going to give you oxygen and you're going to remember that, but that means you're going to wake up faster. And usually they're like, okay, great. Cause they want to get home um, and they want to go rest. So once you're in position, um, I don't put breathing tubes in or LMAs in most of my patients, depending on their airway. Um, sometimes I do. Sometimes I have to intubate because of their gastric emptying or the medications that they're on or uh, other reasons. And so uh, I generally do a, a nice strong jaw thrust <laughs> if needed, or just turn their head side to side. Uh, the physician comes in, um, he does the egg retrieval. It is a process where we can't give any lidocaine. I learned that because um, it can affect egg quality. So the propofol will burn, but you know what? You set up expectations before. Um, we try, try to start IVs in a larger vein just so that it doesn't. But honestly, these patients have been through so many blood jaws. They don't like Nobody likes more needles, um, but they don't like that feeling of the propofol burning either. So I'll just rub on their hand or their arm or wherever the IV is and, and also warn them and just to say, you know, this is it. This is the last thing you're going to remember. And then you're going to take a good nap. Uh, they go to sleep. They wake up. It's a little uh, more difficult than that. <laughs> Anesthesia seems very simple, but it's not. Um, each patient takes a wide variety of medications as far as amounts of propofol is what we usually um, give these patients to keep them asleep. And everyone's different. Some people could take, um, you know, hundreds, some people could take uh, a thousand and they all wake up great because <laughs> it's short acting. Uh, we do use Tordol for most of our patients. Anti-cramping is what I call it. We do do PO Tylenol um, as well. And then we hit all the receptors. You know, we hit the Tylenol, the Tordol, maybe a little fentanyl, depending on if they need it and, um, and mostly propofol and then nasal cannula oxygen in the recovery room. They usually stay 30 minutes. Some people are ready to go in five minutes, but they have to stay 30. And then some people, you know, take a little longer to wake up. So I find that a lot of these patients too, or it's their first time. So I love taking care of first timers because you never know um, what they're going to do, <laughs> but my job is to make it as smooth and as painless as possible and to have the best opportunities. So that's why I pre-treat for nausea. And, you know, I'm not heavy handed with any of my medications. I give them tons of fluid. 
There's a lot of fluid that shifts the next day or within the 24 hours after egg retrieval. But really, this goes for all the anesthesia I do. As long as you set up their expectations, um, nothing, no surgery is really painless at all. I think people sometimes are like, well, anesthesia, I won't feel it. Well, you won't feel it while I'm giving you the medications, but you're going to wake up at some point. And um, most patients do great at our clinic, just, you know, as long as you warn them, hey, cramping is normal. Have you had a bad period? going to be like that. If it's more significant or if it's not tolerable, then we'll discuss, you know, what we're going to do next. And then there's a lot of discharge instructions, mostly from the what to expect in the next 24 hours from the fertility side, less from from us. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's almost the best first time anesthetic you can get because there's no breathing tube and it's not brain or open heart surgery. So chance of risks are there, but they're, they're much lower than um, than your typical first time procedures. Yes. And the chance for a really happy ending is absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, that's another thing. That's why one of the reasons I I love fertility medicine for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is that they are there for a good reason. They're not there because they smoked 80 years and their toes getting cut off, you know, they're there and they're have done everything they can. I think these patients in particular follow every single thing that the physician says, or the nurse says, or, you know, um, whoever is developing the plan or I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. Do you want me to do E? Okay, I'll do it. They are really motivated. And that's a great thing to have. It's an, it's a different patient population than most people having surgery, unless they've broken their arm or something like that. That makes sense. Well, to kind of round out this conversation, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is to normalize um, difficult conversations around loss. And you and I had chatted um, just briefly about you experiencing miscarriage. And I know that a very unique experience for each person. I was wondering if you would share that before we close out this conversation. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think perspective is really important. I think the more you talk about it, the more you realize most likely everyone you meet has had a similar or or at least an experience in the past that has affected them in the fertility world, um, whether it's all the way through IVF or maybe it's just natural pregnancies that haven't been successful. Um, and I know, you know, for me personally, um, I looked at it more clinically because that's my, how my brain works. I'm a science and math girl. And, and so mine was early stage and I knew, you know, probably most likely there was something um, a little off genetically. And um, so it was easier for me. And that's how I accepted it more. I honestly did not talk to many people about it. That was just me personally. Um, but I do talk about my experience as an egg donor. I do talk about my work in fertility medicine. I do talk to those that um, have had multiple miscarriages and then come um, come to me or they know that I work in fertility medicine. And I mean, I get referrals just for me to say where they should go for fertility treatments, which is kind of neat because it's an unusual position to be in where I can say, well, I've never had to do fertility treatments per se, but I've been through an egg retrieval and it gives me a great deal of empathy for those that are going through it for different reasons. Um, but it, 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 you know, it's, it's helpful for me to just to make people really happy and, and nothing against, you know, the males, um, the male CRNAs out there, but like, it's just different when um, you're female and you're going through a female surgery and, and just, you know, it, no one gets through this process and no one really, um, it's really difficult to deal with any kind of loss. And so if you have that experience, you should talk about it and you should give, maybe you don't have to give all the details, but you can say, you know, if someone is announcing it, or if someone wants to talk about it, be open to it and be open to just say, hey, I'm here if you need to vent, if you need advice, um, if you need to hear about what happened to me, 
I feel for those that have had so many struggles and they haven't gotten the support. We actually, our clinic was featured on um, ABC News a few years ago because they were following different families that never, that, that typically don't get the support. And so one in particular was a family who um, was an African-American family and they were big churchgoers and they're, um, they, they got a lot of support from their church, but they were saying that typically in um, their community, they don't get a lot of support. There's not a lot of people that talk about going through fertility treatments, having losses, just in general, um, it's more private in their communities. And so uh, it was really interesting to hear her, their perspective and how they wanted to be featured on the national news, you know, so that they, not everything, but, you know, they really um, opened their life up to a news crew who wasn't really connected, but they were so genuine in explaining why they were going through it and really why they wanted to be on the news. You know, not, no one wants to like <laughs> open themselves up and you know tell all their private information, but they wanted to do it. So it could normalize it a little bit more for fellow African-American friends and just people in general um, there. We do a lot of same sex couples too. We do um, just uh, some surrogacies too. So that's also another option. And um, I don't know, I think, both my experience as an egg donor and um, the fact that I've had a loss is just an important thing to keep in mind that um, sometimes you feel like you're the only one and you're not. Um, and that doesn't mean that your experience is, is less um, important for you. It just means um, that there are other people who have been through it. And depending on what kind of support you need, it's out there. You just have to ask and, um, and talk about it. And no one, if you say, you know, Oh, I, I can't come to work because I had a miscarriage two days ago and I'm still dealing with it. Um, it is, if you're in a <laughs> profession or at work or you're in a work environment that they don't support that, you know, for you to get the mental health um, support that you need, um, you could probably think about, you know, looking for another job because now at least I feel like we've normalized a little bit of mental health, but not all of it. So I think, you know, sometimes we'll be, oh, mine was no big deal. And people talk about their losses and um, it's a big deal. It is a big deal no matter when it happens, how many times it happens. If you were trying, if you were trying to get pregnant, if you really try, you know, going through IVF and those are those are typically the harder ones for us to hear about of um, post-embryo transfers that are not successful. But I tell you what, we also have huge success stories of someone who had, you know, 11 egg retrievals and made one embryo from all of the egg retrievals. And she is has a beautiful, healthy two-year-old and is now going through it again because she did so great. She's like, oh, I did great last time. I was like, you are like, the, everyone should hear about your story. Like if they, if they say, you know, a patient comes in, they say, oh, I got to do IVF. I'm like, yes, but also you may only have to do it once. <laughs> you know? and, and there's stories out there. So there's, it, it just depends on how I, no one going through this process is not strong and it will, it will it will, it will show you if you're a strong person or not. Some people come out on the other side, very, very strong. And some um, have to work on their strength a little bit, but I think it's, it's super important to talk about. And I love that the work that you're doing too, just to really get the message out there that, um, you know, we should talk about it and we should get the support we need. And, and the support is out there. You just have to, you just have to ask for it. Yes. And also too, it's okay to, try to, you know, say, oh, maybe a support group would be helpful. And then you try that and you're like, oh, that's not quite the right fit. And you, so you try something else, you try therapy or you try, you know, whatever, there's lots of different avenues. And sometimes yeah. you just have to try and see what works for you. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I think in any kind of grief and it is, um, you know, that is, that's the category that, you know, having multiple or singular loss is in and different grief groups are different, you know, and you do, you have to, you have to find your people and you have to find the support. And it's hard to not play the comparison game sometimes um, with other moms or future moms or partners. But um, the most important thing is, is to do what you need to do for your own self, whether that's fertility preservation as a young, healthy woman, um, or exploring infertility treatments as early as possible. If I had any advice for those that, you know, I didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't, you know, we got married when we were in our mid thirties, or maybe they've been trying for seven, eight years. And they just think, and I tell you what, I hate to give advice because so many people give advice out there. And I always say, I'm sure you've heard all the advice about fertility. Oh yeah. They say, I said, that doesn't go away. Just accept it because when you get pregnant, people will give you advice. When you have a baby, people will give you advice. It's not always the best advice. Take it with a grain of salt and do what's best for you. <laughs> yes. And then you become parents and they give you advice all through every stage. Of oh, yeah. <laughs> Whether you want it or not. degrees outside. Why is your baby, you know, in a onesie and no socks? I'm like, it's 110 degrees in Nashville. And they're like, cover that baby up. I'm like, they are sweating. They are sweating. <laughs> and who are you? You're some stranger in the grocery line. So... I had to get used to how uh, Nashville, to how the people are. They like to ask questions and yeah. and they're very friendly. And I'm from Detroit and it was not as not friendly. It's very friendly, but it's just different. You know, if you check out with pickles and cream cheese and pastrami, they're going to ask you what you're making for dinner and you have to you know, be okay with that too. Yeah. And then they're going to ask you, you know, how did you, I have two redheads. How does your baby get red hair? Um, I don't know. My husband's name is Carlos. I never know. And my daughter looks just like him and has dark hair. So you just never know about the two redheads. Uh, where do they come from? I don't know. I actually, part of me thinks um, after my egg donation that I really want to do 23andMe so that I can find out if the red hair <laughs> transferred to, they chose me for my brown hair and blue eyes and they, surprise, got some red hair. So <laughs> who knows? Yeah, that would be interesting. Well, you have been a wealth of knowledge and information um, this evening, and I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on this call and share your journey and your professional opinions and advice and insights. And I think that it'll be really helpful for many people listening to this podcast. Thank you, Katie. You're so welcome. And I'm so happy to answer anyone else's questions just about what to expect um, as they're going through fertility treatments as far as the anesthesia goes or refer you to anyone, um, if you have other questions that I can't answer, there's plenty of those. <laughs> so, and thank you for having me. Yes, my pleasure. And if people do have questions, do you want them just to email them to me and maybe I just have you back on or it, do you have contact information? What would be easiest? Sure. Um, so um, the easiest way to contact me is actually through uh, my website where I teach American Heart Association classes. Um, it's got a contact page, um, but it's CRNA. ACLS, um, which is Advanced Cardiac Life Support, um, but crnaacls.com. Use the contact button there. And then also feel free to share my email with anyone um, in the show notes. And um, yeah, I'm happy to usually email or text is easier than uh, phone calls because I tend not to answer my phone because it's so much spam these days. But yeah, happy to happy to help. I consider myself a big helper even on certain different Facebook groups. If you know, you're looking for a certain plant or looking to see what it is and I'm happy to search it up. <laughs> so yes, I think I think a lot of CRNA moms in particular are all about searching and finding those answers. So I will put I all of those links in the show notes for anybody who um would like to 
get in contact with you, or maybe they need some BLS ACLS certification, <laughs> that sure. will be in the show uh, notes. Yeah, I make it try to make it as easy as possible for CRNAs. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you again, Katie, and um, I'll put all that information in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. In addition to some of the links to things that Katie and I discussed, you will also find links to the Pause to Remember community, including the Facebook group and virtual support group. If you benefited from this podcast, I encourage you to hop over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and share this episode or any of the other episodes with any provider who you feel would benefit from the information. Thanks again for being here. I look forward to sharing again with you soon.